National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. The 2022 midterm elections did not deliver the quite anticipated red wave that was expected to sweep the Republicans back to power in Washington, D.C., but it did, however, bring some major surprises and left the GOP poised to block President Biden's agenda for the next two years. What were the biggest takeaways from the midterms? This week on Register Radio, we're joined by Loretta Brown, Register staff writer who has been covering the midterms. And then we talk with Register Senior Editor Jonathan Liedel about the upcoming USCCB Bishops Meeting in Baltimore. I'm Matthew Bunsen, filling in this week for Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the uh, National Catholic Register, your usual host for Register Radio. I'm really delighted to be with you this weekend, especially after the momentous elections that we've just seen. Well, as I mentioned, the midterms were full of surprises this last week, including a very shocking show of strength by Democrat candidates in what were thought to be competitive races for control of the U.S. Senate. In the end, the Republicans seemed at least on pace to take a narrow control of the House of Representatives, and the fate of the Senate will likely rest on a runoff in Georgia between Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. A lot of drama to talk about, and as I said, a lot of surprises. To discuss all of this, I'm joined by Loretta Brown, registered staff writer, as I said also, who's been covering the midterms now very closely. Loretta, welcome. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Well, this, uh, let's just say the midterms, I don't think quite turned out the way that many of the polls had indicated. And I think there were a lot of expectations on both sides uh, that some of the results are going to be quite different. Uh, let's set the table a little bit, though. Uh, as we're talking right now, we're recording ahead of time a little bit. Uh, we're still waiting on the results for a lot of races. But what's your overall assessment of how the midterms played out? Yeah, I mean, frankly, it was a really, it's a really mixed bag, um, you know, and, and as you say, we're waiting on some things, um, you know, Republicans are projected to take control of the House at this point. Um, but yeah, waiting to see some things and the, the Georgia Senate race um, is going to a runoff. So we won't know about that till in de- December. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I say it's a mixed bag, I mean, I think there were the Republicans overall um, under underperformed a little bit um, compared to a lot of projections, um, but it, it wasn't that Democrats had some you know commanding <laughs> um, victories either. It was a lot of razor thin races, um, you know, particularly in the Senate in these states that um, you know it, it wasn't clear how it was going to go. Pennsylvania, Ohio, there's it was some real nail biters for a minute there, and um, another aspect I was looking at or the uh, ballot initiatives on abortion. Right, yeah. So I think pro-lifers in particular were disappointed. Um, That was kind of a sobering thing because those did not go in the pro-life direction. Um, The the two pro-life measures in Kentucky and Montana um, did not pass. And then the... um, the pro-abortion measures in California and Vermont and Michigan did. Um, I think eh, they they might still be counting the votes on on Montana at least and, and some of those others. <laughs> right. But it's projections. You know, it looks it's pretty. It seems pretty clear at this point. So I feel confident enough <laughs> um, saying this. And so it is one of those things where um, I think there is some soul searching, some messaging and strategy discussions going on in the pro-life movement to say. Um, okay, you know how do we how do we better express our message here that we, we're seeing seeing some of these losses on these ballot measures? Um, 
but yeah, in terms of the Senate and the House, it's it's mixed. You know, Republicans would have liked to have done a lot better, um, but it's not that Democrats are rejoicing over some clear victory either. It just seems very uh, split. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, let, let's start with the House, where um, there was a lot of conversation about uh, picking up 30, 40 seats. And that became pretty clear early on on Tuesday evening that uh, that was not going to happen, especially when the Democrats managed to hold a number of uh, key seats in Virginia and a few other places. Having said that, uh, lost in a lot of the discussion is the fact that, uh, as of right now at least, uh, the Republicans seem poised to take over the House uh, for the first time, I think, since, what, 2010. And uh, we also have the the situation of um, a lot of seats still being contested, but also some new faces coming in. Uh, So who would be the likely person to take over uh, the GOP as Speaker of the House should Nancy Pelosi be uh, removed, so to speak, uh, by this election? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, I think I, I've i heard discussions about uh, Kevin McCarthy, um, you know, because he uh, was so involved in a lot of these races. And um, I think... I think before the results were coming in, it seemed almost like very certain that that he would be a you know a clear contender for Speaker mm-hmm. of the House. Um, however, you know we we didn't, as you say, you know get the the thirty or forty seat like the Republicans didn't get some sort of you know sweeping landslide uh, taking back control of the House there. So I, that might that might hurt him. Um, and in that case, you know. I, it, it's I'm, I'm really not sure, you know, like it'll, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what happens there. So, I mean, I, I very like I do think he's a strong contender. I think his name has has come up for that. And it, I yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in that role. But I think, um, you know, depending on how these races go, I could see some discontent with him and maybe other names suggested and it just going a different way. So we'll right. see. Now, is there uh, any truth to the argument uh, that uh, these types of landslides, such as the one we saw in 1994 and the, the sort of Republican revolution in Newt Gingrich, we saw another one uh, I was just mentioning in, in 2010, uh, are those even possible now because we're so polarized, but also there seem to be so few real swing districts? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think like because of the factors you mentioned, it is something that seems like it, yeah, it may not be something that happens really, you know, the, such, such a clear, you know, landslide. Um, and I, I just keep hearing the term polarized, right, on the abortion issue, but even just, yeah, a lot of these issues. I think um, the American voter is, you know, in some ways just becoming more and more polarized on a lot of things. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, really, but I think mm-hmm. that it's it's something that there's there's a strong argument to be made that, that yeah, we're not going to see these, these landslide victories right. like in 2010. Well, jumping quickly to the Senate, uh, I think that's probably where most people were surprised. Uh, were you personally surprised, because I know you've been following these uh, campaigns very closely, at the results in Pennsylvania where this is a seat that's been held by Republicans. Uh, 
Dr. Oz, Dr. Mehmet Oz, seemed at least to be positioned to win this seat. And yet uh, the Democrat, John Fetterman, uh, I think was much stronger than people had anticipated. Yeah, I was a little surprised um, to, to see that how that played out. And I think um, looking at some of the analysis of it, um, it's it starts to make maybe more sense. Um, I think there were people who, um, you know, saw Fetterman as just, I guess, the more the more reliable candidate on certain issues. I think Dr. Oz has that personality, you know, like prior to he was a TV personality. He was not the conventional candidate. And, you know, people brought that up. And I, I was even hearing the point about um the, the pro-life stance he took, you know, may, and and living out of state for a time before, I think there was a perception that, um, you know, he, he had changed maybe some views and um, wasn't as like reliable or, or having as, as consistent of a record. Right. And so I don't know, you know, how much of a factor that was, but I, I, I heard those things discussed and, um, it is it is something that I think was was strange to see because as you said it it was a Republican seat and it was something where you know Fetterman was not I think a very strong candidate in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. he had he is re- recovering you know from from a stroke and he he was had those obstacles and questions um, and. So it was, yeah, it was a weird race in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes, it was. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that was how it ended up turning out. So I don't know. <laughs> well, and uh, from, a, from a Catholic standpoint, um, it's been observed that um, these very strong pro-life candidates, I think of Marco Rubio, I, I think of DeSantis in Florida, uh, for governor there, uh, as well as someone like J.D. Vance in Ohio, who were unabashedly pro-life, but also very open and willing to call out uh, what was a f- pretty radical extremism regarding abortion on the part of their opponents, uh, that all of them seemed to do better than those who were trying to sort of tap dance around the issue. Would you agree with that assessment? Oh, 100%, yeah. And that was an observation I was hearing from a lot of uh, pro-life leaders, even just from, you know, people people watching, you know, how these races were playing out is just that um, the strategy of either saying, oh, we're, we're not really going to talk about abortion, you know, just avoiding the topic, or the strategy of, um, you know, just saying, oh, well, I'm, I may be personally pro-life, but, um, you know, I would... I would embrace, you know, whatever abortion laws of the state. Um, those candidates didn't were not as successful as, you know, on the Republican side as uh, the DeSantis, Rubio, you know, the people who were saying, "Hey, like I'm pro-life. This is what I believe, and here's where I think the other side needs to talk about, you know, abortion up, up through birth, um, you know, like all those all those stances where, you know, maybe they need to answer more questions on that. Th- that seemed to really. Uh, pay off for those candidates. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned right at the, the start of our conversation these uh, amendments uh, to the constitutions. There were, there were five amendments that were up. Uh, you mentioned uh, Montana uh, and Kentucky, which were pro life. But then we had some pretty horrendous uh, amendments that uh, unfortunately passed in California. Uh, I think in Michigan and then in Vermont. Uh, they seemed pretty uniform in their language and names, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And it was, 
you know, these amendments, I think it was something where there was a lot of messaging and a lot of money and strategy around, um, you know, the, the abortion advocates pushing for this were saying, oh, it's just, you know, access to abortion. Um, it's just the reasonable measure in light of um, Roe being overturned in Dobbs. And so I think pro-lifers had a very tough battle in those states because they kept trying to point out, no, you know, look at this really... Uh, you know, ambiguous or like very sweeping language where it's basically not letting there be any restrictions on abortion. It's it's this other extreme, you know, you guys have right. to look at this at what this would do. And yeah, it's the, I think, the high ground of yeah. uh, euphemism. Right. Well, Loretta, I really appreciate uh, your coverage. Uh, I encourage everyone to read all of your coverage of the midterms, especially in the coming weeks uh, as we now focus on Georgia. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you. Well, when we come back, I'm joined by Register Senior Editor Jonathan Liedel about the upcoming USCCB Fall General Assembly. Bishop James Conley talks about the National Catholic Register. I've been reading the Register for over 40 years, and I can tell people with absolute conviction that it's the best periodical out there. They're honest, they're true, and they give a great perspective. It's important to be able to have a news source like the National Catholic Register where we can go to and make sense and decipher what's going on around us. It also engages the imagination. If you really want to be an informed Catholic, you got to read the National Catholic Register. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. While you're waiting on your first issue, be sure to enjoy our content online. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Matthew Bunsen filling in this week for Jeanette DeMello, our regular host, the executive director of the National Catholic Register. Well, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB, is going to be gathering next week for the 2022 Fall Plenary Assembly in Baltimore. Uh, the assembly will be gifted uh, with the presence of the papal nuncio to the United States, Archbishop Christophe Pierre, and they have a pretty packed and full agenda. Uh, but the one item that I think most people are heavily focused on is the election for the new conference president and vice president, as well as various uh, chairman-elect of six conference committees. There is a lot of speculation as to who the next uh, president is going to be, and to talk about that, plus other items on this packed agenda, I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Liedel, a senior editor for the National Catholic Register. Jonathan, welcome. Great to be with you, Matthew. Well, as I was mentioning, uh, there's a lot of talk about who might become president. This is uh, one of those unique opportunities, though, isn't it, where there isn't a likely person to be chosen because of the circumstances of uh, age and time. Exactly. You're right, Matthew. Normally, when the General Assembly rolls around, when there's an election for the president of the USCCB, we have a pretty good idea of who it's going to be because there's a longstanding precedent of simply electing the current vice president to serve as president for the upcoming term. But you alluded to it with the issue of age and time. The current vice president, Archbishop Henry Vigneron uh, from Detroit, 
He's actually 74, which means he will turn 75 retirement age during the next three years, making him uh, ineligible to, to kind of step into that spot and serve as president. So, yeah, there's there's a sense uh, that things are kind of more wide open uh, than normal uh, and that, you know, maybe any one of the 10 candidates who, who are up for consideration might have a shot. There was a time in uh, papal history when uh, you could actually sort of wager on who would be elected pope. I mention that because uh, you had a piece at the ncregister.com on who will be the next USCCB president. Uh, you had all of the candidates laid out. And I have to say that if, if, if someone were a betting person and there were the opportunity, <laughs> you would have pr provided all of us all of the things that we would need to figure out who might be the dark horse, who might be the favorites. It was a great piece, and I encourage everyone to read it. So I wanted to ask you, at this point, uh, what are the, some of the names that you're hearing? Obviously, no bishop yeah. is going to say, yes, I'd like to be elected president. But uh, who, who do you see sort of standing out at this point? Yeah, I think if if we take into account, right, there's not the normal era of parents, so the, the current vice president not stepping up, then we ask the question, well, who who might be next in line uh, of that order of succession. And Archbishop Timothy Brolio, who's the Archbishop of the Archdiocese of the Military Services, he actually came second in the vote for USCCB vice president back in 2019. And he's currently serving as the secretary of the conference. So uh, that alone kind of uh, sets him up uh, as, a, as a potential leading candidate. Then he also brings to the table, uh, you know, the fact that he has you know, experience uh, in the Vatican. He was actually trained uh, as part of the Vatican diplomatic corps. Um, and there, I think there is a sense among among the bishops in the USCCB that they'd, they'd like to sort of grow in unity and the perception of being in unity with Rome and, and the Holy Father, Pope Francis. So Archbishop Brolio's connection uh, to the Holy See might, might make him um, a favorite there. I think another another name we can mention, um, Bishop Kevin Rhodes. He is the bishop from Fort Wayne, South Bend in Indiana. Um, so he's the current head of the Doctrine Committee. Actually, he, he was the head of the Doctrine uh, Committee until just recently. And he's he played a, an important role. Um, if, we, if we go back to 2021 and that uh, the Eucharistic Coherence document, of course, that was that had a lot of drama around it. Uh, at least at the June 2021 meeting of the bishops. And uh, as head of the Doctrine Committee at the time, Bishop Rhodes, um, you know, played the role of kind of shepherding that that document, which of course was very controversial, at least among some bishops who were worrying that it would, quote, politicize the Eucharist, um, you know, if it, if it potentially focused on politicians who promote things that are intrinsically evil and against Catholic teaching like abortion and, and said that they were not, you know, should not be receiving communion or could be barred from receiving communion. So it was controversial, at least in that way. And he, you know, ushered the document forward and got it to a, a point where when the bishops met again that November, uh, there was hardly a peep. It was able to pass. But also I've heard from people that that people don't, even though there's a perception maybe in the Catholic media or from some that the document was watered down, some bishops don't necessarily feel that way because it still allowed, for instance, Archbishop Cordelioni in San Francisco to move forward uh, to, you know, ex, you know, impose a kind of pastoral discipline on Speaker Nancy Pelosi and bar her from the communion. And I'm pretty sure he actually cited the document that the bishops published. So he he's seen as someone who's doctrinally orthodox, but also has the capacity 
um, to maybe be a unifier or to maybe you know try to get more bishops on board, which I think is is always a concern uh, among the bishops that they be perceived as in unity with each other. Uh, I guess the final candidate I can mention now, although you know there, there's so many more we could talk about, but you you said dark horse. So the one that I described as the dark horse is also actually the youngest candidate. Uh, on the slate of candidates, and that's Bishop Daniel Flores from Brownsville, Texas. So he is actually the current head of the doctrinal committee, and he is also among all the bishops, uh, the only one to have received his his doctorate in theology from the Angelicum, which is the 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 pontifical academy run by the Dominicans, the patron of Saint Thomas Aquinas. So a reputation as a very clear Thomistic thinker, very uh, highly regarded for his theological acumen by his brother bishops. Uh, he's one of these younger bishops as well, who who kind of brings that that dimension of uh, maybe of, an, of encounter that the, the Pope has talked about a lot. And he also seems to defy kind of uh, a lot of the categories that sometimes get imposed uh, upon bishops and the church and its social teaching. So he, he's young, and if he doesn't, um, you know, if he doesn't win this time, he might be one of those younger prelates who the bishops say, well, let's get him in at vice president so that in three years' time, after he has more experience with the conference, more experience with leadership on this kind of national level, uh, he could maybe serve as president at that time. So a lot of this, of course, Matthew, I got to emphasize so that no one takes out a bet and then blames me if it doesn't go you know, the way I <laughs> You're described. safe, no worries. Um, is that it's, a lot, it's a lot of speculation at this point, right? It it's is. It's a lot of... Um, just kind of looking at backgrounds and, and trying to get a sense of what the bishops might want to prioritize and, and kind of making judgments from there. Well, plus uh, Bishop Flores has one of the all-time best uh, Twitter handles for any of the bishops, and that's Amigo de Frodo. <laughs> that's absolutely right. Yeah, and I think he, I think that's part of his charm is that he, so Amigo de Frodo, of course, the friend of Frodo Baggins from from Lord of the Rings, and he tweets out regularly you know, his his reflections on scripture, or if he's reading Lord of the Rings, or, you know, he has a dog. Sometimes he tweets pictures of his dogs, if there are people who who, who like dogs. Um, but he, yeah, he's he's just seen as someone who I think, um, yeah, can kind of connect with a number of people. So, yeah, maybe he might win the award for, for most interesting Twitter uh, <laughs> profile, but we'll no, see how we'll much never know. <laughs> Their conversations can be very wide-ranging, especially behind closed doors. So there's a lot of other stuff, though, that the, the bishops are going to be talking about. So one area that uh, I know post-Roe that the, a lot of the bishops have been focusing on, and that is supporting women and children in this post-Roe, post-Dobbs era. Yeah, absolutely. And the bishops are slated to discuss that. We have a preview of their agenda. And I think you're right. It's definitely the post-Roe context. And then now we can say also the post-midterm context. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, some disappointments for the pro-life movement. I think every ballot initiative where abortion was kind of in question, uh, the pro-life position lost. And so I think there's there's a growing sense that the way forward at this point of time, of course, the goal is eventually that abortion would be illegal. But I think the emphasis uh, we're seeing it is to talk about making abortion unthinkable um, by addressing those those uh, factors, material, social, whatever they might be, that that are said to kind of contribute to to women feeling like they need this as an option, as a choice. And so, I think the reason we can think that the bishops are going to move in this direction is that um, you know in October actually we saw 
a letter sent uh, by uh, Archbishop William Laurie, who's the Archbishop from Baltimore, talking about building a culture of life in the post-Roe context. And this was his emphasis. His emphasis was on radical solidarity. His emphasis was on uh, emphasizing a kind of family-focused policies, so making marriage easier for people, helping people with health care, with, with all kinds of things like, like that, that can make it difficult or scary to bring a child into the world for some. And then just days after that, Archbishop Laurie, who's the head of the pro-life committee, along with Archbishop Coakley, who's the head of the, the Bishop's Domestic Policy Committee, uh, and Bishop Dorsonville, who's the head of the Immigration Committee, and Archbishop Cordeloni, the head of the, the Marriage and Family Committee, they all wrote a letter to Congress and basically taking this point and saying, hey, now in the post-Roe context, we have a historic op opportunity to build a culture of life, right? And we want to highlight these kinds of policies that really have the family in mind and really have mothers and children and the unborn in mind uh, as well. So I think that it's going to be up for discussion. And of course, Matthew, as you know, the way that the conference has talked about abortion, the way that they've tried to educate the faithful about it and advocate for it has been somewhat controversial uh, in the recent past. There have been you know, debates and arguments about it among the bishops, and so I would expect uh, that to potentially uh, continue. Um, or there could be a sense that, that by moving in this direction of, of focusing on making abortion unthinkable and building a culture of life, that it could actually be an opportunity for unity among the bishops. So I'm, I'm very intrigued by what we'll, we'll see take place around this item in Baltimore. Yeah, exactly. So in the brief time that we have left, uh, I'm almost afraid to ask the question, but uh, uh, briefly, what are going to be the discussions on the Synod on Synodality? It's definitely listed. It's the first item on there. So the Synod on Synodality, now we're in the continental stage of it. So I think uh, if that is indeed in in part of the plenary session that's open to the public, I I think there will be questions for, you know, we mentioned Bishop Daniel Flores. He's head of the Doctrine Committee. So right now he is the one kind of leading the charge in the U.S. Church's participation in the Synod. And the document that was put forward as a synthesis of kind of all the synodal discussions that took place in the U.S., uh, you know, has been criticized um, by, by a number of Catholics as being uh, perhaps too positive, too therapeutic. Right. So I think it, it, it will, I think we will see a number of bishops um, raise these concerns and, and have pointed questions about them and ask for, for greater clarification about what synodality is and what it isn't. Yeah, well, and uh, you and I will both be there, so I look forward to covering this event. Well, that uh, finishes our episode for this week here on Register Radio. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks so much for joining me here. I'm filling in for Jeanette DeMello. I'm Matthew Bunsen. On behalf of Jeanette and our producer, Jeff Burson, please take care, and until next week, God bless. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on ewtn.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.